0: Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h e-l p dot com slash for the love.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot.
0: Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome you guys to the show. Oh my goodness. My guest today is delightful. Like I just finished the episode with her as I'm recording this intro and I just found her so riveting and engaging and You're going to love this conversation. We're in a series right now called For the Love of Untraditional Traditions. And we just wanted to bring a holiday series that made a lot of room, right? For things changing, both out of our control and maybe in our control, for doing things differently, for finding meaning in new ways, maybe this year, and making room for things that are different. So, in the spirit of this series, I'd love to take a, just a minute to talk about all the ways our lives play out that we like could never see coming, right? Like Just a few weeks ago, I joked on Instagram about how 1992 Jen would have thought 2022 Jen was on drugs if I told her about various elements about her life right now, and I stand by that. So... I mean, as many things have changed for me in 2022, things that I both wanted and worked toward, dreams that I didn't even know were possible, and then also things that I didn't want and I didn't expect. But all of it makes me who I am today. Like at this point, I I just, I almost wouldn't offload anything off my plate because even the hard parts of the story turned out to create some beautiful parts too and have changed me in permanent ways and in a lot of ways that I like and that I love. And so as the holidays are here and of course still approaching, I am looking at new traditions and new ways to be with my family and friends, new ways to create belonging. I have a new precious person to me in my life this year. Tyler's in my life this year at Christmas. What is that going to look like? Remy is in Spain this year. That's the first time I haven't ever been with a kid on Christmas ever. So knowing that some of the pieces are, I don't even know if I would say out of place. Some of them are in place. I think all those, the pieces I just mentioned are in place, but they are different than what it has been before. I am kind of asking new questions. and so. Here's what I want us to talk about today. Could we challenge ourselves to think about gathering today? And and frankly, in all of our different spaces during the holidays. So whether that's your family and your extended family, whether it's your workplace, friend meetups, your schools, faith communities, maybe your volunteer spaces, your hobby groups, and whatever it is. How do we create belonging and connection inside our groups? What does it mean to gather well? So our guest today is an evangelist for meaningful gatherings. You have certainly seen her work. She is just a phenomenal, powerful leader, Priya Parker. She's spoken and worked all over the world, teaching how to create a sense of belonging everywhere, in boardrooms, all the way to baby showers like you name it if if anybody is gathering this is our girl priya got her start in this field at a really young age as a kid when she straddled the two very different worlds of her parents <laughs> this this is what she said this is in her own words on friday afternoons i'd leave my mother and stepfather's indian liberal vegetarian meditating buddhist atheist or agnostic on hopeful days, global household, and travel the 1.4 miles to my father and stepmother's white, American, evangelical, Christian, conservative, twice a week church going, meat eating, basketball dribbling household. <laughs> oh, I love her description of her own childhood in these two just very disparate worlds. So In learning to search for belonging and like true connection in those different family places, for Priya, it sparked a lifelong passion for learning what makes people feel safe and heard. So you're going to love hearing how this mashup of backgrounds laid the foundation for really all of her work to spring forth and new traditions that she both blended and created. She's got just a fascinating history and she's thoughtful and poignant and I like the questions that she is asking and I like her north stars the ones that she's pointing to is these are the things that matter so I'm deeply excited for you to hear this conversation with the absolutely delightful and wonderful Priya Parker You guys, this is an awesome day. Priya, welcome so much to the show. I've just, we were just talking before we hit record. I've just followed you for years and loved your work for years. I just, I'm so glad you're finally like in our little orbit here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I have heard about you through common friends and fellow travelers for years, and it's such a delight. I'm so excited to be in conversation with you.
0: Thank you. Okay. So, I have already kind of filled my listeners in kind of high level a little bit about who you are, but I wonder before we kind of go back in time for you just a bit, can you just take a minute here to tell us a little bit about, okay, this is who I am. This is my deal. This is what I'm working on kind of like right now in my current life. And then we're going to take it back in your story.
1: Sure. I am like everyone listening, many things. (laughs) I'm a conflict resolution facilitator. And I came into this work in many ways, in part because of the ways I was raised and the families from which I come. I'm biracial. I'm bicultural. I was raised, I was born in Zimbabwe because that was the region my parents were living in at the time and the closest hospital, good hospital that would accept an interracial couple at the time. Mm. And I know it's like, oh, that's what apartheid
0: means. Uh. Ah, yes. Yes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and kind of practical, it actually affects us, not just in psychological ways, but in structural and logistical ways. They moved every few years because of their work, and we were kind of put loose and fancy free And as a, as a little unit of three. And we eventually moved to Virginia, settled down. My father is American, so we were you know, sort of coming back to his home country. And within a year, my parents separated. And within two years, they divorced. And within three years, they had each remarried other people. And I was their only child and they had joint custody. And so I grew up for probably from age, I don't know, 10 or 11, 12 through co- until college, going back and forth between these two households. And they were kind of worlds apart. In many, many different ways, my my mother is, and stepfather, their household, is sort of as a culture that was created, because when one you know when one comes into union with another person, you're actually creating a new culture and you join culture. Even if you're Mets and Yankees fans, right? Like you're you're kind of figuring together how to be, and that was Indian, English, Buddhist, agnostic, theosophist. On Sundays, we would spend time meditating and reading Thich Nhat Hanh and eat vegetarian food and progressive household. And I would travel on Fridays to my father and stepmother's home where I would enter and stay for two weeks. And in that context, that meant entering a white American evangelical Christian home, a Presbyterian home, a conservative Republican home, a meat eating home, a twice times, three times a week church going home. And I grew up in these incredibly different, 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 different homes. And I was a part of each family. And as I sometimes say, I was also kind of apart from each family, like somewhat and some just temporally, you know, like every two weeks I was literally not there. <laughs> and I was always interested in how people come together, how they make meaning, how they create and invent certain rituals that give us a sense of belonging. And in part because of who I was, without all having to be the same. And that really deeply, deeply affects my dialogue work. It affects why I became a group facilitator. It's what I studied also in college, immigration, identity, race, power, privilege. And it's kind of the thread that I continue to. And and so today, I'm still a conflict resolution facilitator. And my day job, in addition to kind of teaching teaching and writing and researching around how anyone can make meaningful experiences for and with their people, one gathering at a time. I'm still a group dialogue facilitator and the pandemic has shifted my work. So it's mostly now on Zoom, but I work with groups, with organizations, with within political movements that are experiencing some amount of crisis or transition to really help a group have a complex conversation that they've been avoiding. Oh, man.
0: Who needs that in today's modern world? Anybody? <laughs> I don't know, I can't I don't know you anyone. Have a job. <laughs> wow, that is a heavy lift, and I, I'm curious. I'd love to hear your opinion because as I hear you sort of describe that, I think that is absolutely a gap in cultural skill set right now, which is just meaningful dialogue, meaningful conversation even meaningful disagreement I mean we this is a void do you in your experience because you've been at this a minute is it your opinion that we are going in reverse on this scale or is it simply that we see it more that social media has elevated what's always really been there behind the curtain into such sort of like public discourse at this point or are we literally getting worse at this
1: it's a beautiful question. I, I think that there's a lot of different things going on and a lot of factors at play. I think that the cultivation of meaningful dialogue, of meaningful conversation, is a cultural practice. And I think that there are elements that help build that muscle and that there's elements that block the going to that cultural gym, right? <laughs> and I think. You know, and this is the rise of the cell phone, even before kind of thinking about the internet and cell phones block our connections to one another, one just as a source of distraction. But there's even studies that show that when you're in person, you're talking and and a cell phone is on the table. You're not even looking at it. The cell phone is at the table. People perceive the other side to be less engaged. And so some of this is our tools in person and virtual and I think some of this is a lack, you know, we we get trained in so many different skills. We get trained, whether, you know, I have young kids, at some point you start learning an instrument, you start learning sports, you start, and I don't know a lot of places that train like the democratic practice of meaningful conversation across difference. And I'll give a simple example. You know, I have, I have two young kids right now, they're seven and four. And one of the practices that we kind of started at home, not even really intentionally thinking about it. And I think a lot of families do it called Rose and Thorn. And the evenings we were together for a meal, we each go around and say, what's the best part of our day? What's the worst part of our day? And sometimes my kids get a little bit bored (laughs) of that question. And so sometimes they change it a little bit and they ask a question. Each person gets asked a question of the group. And my son will say, I know. What's your favorite animal? And his name is Orion. Orion loves animals. The rest are like obsessed. And the rest of us is like, okay, we've like talked about it. I was like, it's fine. And i and I said this to my son. I said, you know, Orion, let's think about a question. What is a good question for a group? And I said, a good question is a question that everybody around the table is interested in answering. And everybody around the table is interested or curious in everybody else's answer. That's good. Right? That's what I mean when I say, like, we don't have a lot of spaces where we get to practice even something like question formation, let alone the incredibly complex navigation of difference, which is, you know, exploding right now. But there's many layers. It's also not rocket science. But part of, I think, what's happening right now is... We are doing as one person who wrote me from a small church in North Carolina describing her church. He said, we're doing a lot of missing of each other. We're missing each other spatially because of the pandemic. We're missing each other politically. We're missing each other during racial reckoning. And I think the art and craft of beginning to find each other again is to think about when and how do we actually meet and how do we set it up in a way that people feel safe enough to engage?
0: Mm, You're right. We're untrained unskilled and unpracticed and so it's no wonder we can kind of look around at the adults in the room I guess that's what we're supposed to be and realize that we're really no better off than we were in middle school a lot of us and so there's such a place for your work there is such a place for your specific training and and by the
1: way like your, your point on middle school is so interesting I actually think middle schoolers have more training better yeah Absolutely. Uh Right. We have, we had civics classes. Like I remember being part of peer mediation groups in elementary school and middle school. I'm taught, we were taught how to like frame a question. We were taught in part, we're so untrained because we assume we know it. We assume we know the craft of asking a question that will make a group come alive. We assume we know the craft of writing an invitation that allows people to feel excitement rather than anxiety. And it's not rocket science, but it is a set of skills. Can you just give
0: us like, I mean, obviously this is, this is a complex discussion and the set of training, right? Like yes, this is an, yes. I
1: see, give but, me the down and dirty.
0: What, what if you were going to give us like one or two, like of them because you say this isn't necessarily rocket science there's some low-hanging fruit here that everyone has access to that maybe just simply hasn't haven't occurred to us or we haven't seen it in practice or we're we're making some poor assumptions about what engagement looks like if you were just going to say these are a couple of those types of things I would reach for what would you suggest
1: so first the biggest mistake we make when we gather and this is for our, our weddings for our funerals for our meetings, for our volunteer workshops, like any type of group experience. Three or more people come together for a moment that you know has a beginning, middle and end for a purpose is that we assume that the purpose is obvious and shared. Oh, I know what a church prayer service is. Oh, I know what a funeral is, and because we don't, pause to ask, why am I doing this? What is the need here? What is the purpose? We skip too quickly to form. And we have these existing forms in our head of what something has to look like. And then we obsess of the form. The simplest way to begin starting to think about how do I meaningfully engage my community is to first, it's not say, should I host a party or should I host a dinner? Those are all forms to first start and saying, what is a need in my life? Or what is a need in this community that by bringing together a specific group of people, we might be able to address. So I'll give a simple example. It's kind of a playful example. So a couple of years ago, I, when, when The Art of Gathering came out, was published, May 2018, I got a phone call from a journalist and she was assigned to write a piece for a magazine. I think it was real simple magazine. And she said, Priya, can you please Art of Gatheringify, my dinner party? And I said, what do you think that means? She said, I don't know. Like, you, you put the wine glass here. Do you put the you know, serve ramps? I said what I just said to you. I said, first pause and just ask, why are you hosting this dinner party? And she said, basically obligation. I was assigned it, right? Not so different from many of the reasons we
0: totally.
1: Hosted. I was like, come sit by me. And I said, okay, so just pause. And if you had to answer the question, what is a need in your life that by bringing together a specific group of people you might be able to address? What would that be? And she paused, and she was like, I don't know if this counts, but I. I'm a journalist. I'm also a worn out mom. And the other day, I was at a friend's house and she cut me peanut butter and jelly sandwich into triangles and fed me baby pit carrot sticks, and I burst into tears. And I said, Why did you burst into tears? And she said, Because I realized that I'm really worn out. And it was a long time. It's been a long time since someone else was taking care of me, since I wasn't playing the role of caretaker. And she said, What if I hosted a dinner party for my other worn out
0: moms? And I said, I "Great!" This. I gave me goosebumps.
1: I yeah. said, give it a "Name, give it a name." And she called it the Worn Out Mom's Hootenanny. Oh gosh! And then love I it. said, "Give it a rule." And she said, "If you talk about your kids, you have to take a tequila shot."
0: Oh my goodness! I love <laughs> it.
1: <laughs> and and I and, and like the story is like there was a real need and you have a need, you're moving from the mentality and even the invitation of like, I need to fill these seats. It's almost like a using of people. Like I need to get butts in seats. We've all been there, whether you're launching a product or whether you're hoping people show up to a workshop, like whatever it is, is. Two, I actually have a need and it's vulnerable. Won't you come help me? It's risky, right? Like I, I, I feel this way. Do you? And then it was specific. She oriented her guests just slightly. And it was kind of a wink, you know, a wink and a nudge, like, don't talk about your kids. But in this kind of playful way, which was actually this radical act, which is just because we are parents, just because we are mothers in this case, doesn't mean we have to talk about our children. There's so much conversational territory, right? She was actually giving a little bit of a structure to get permission to talk about so many other parts of one's identity over that night. And all six women RSVP'd. Yes, they did it. They hosted it. They had the time of their lives. So they ordered takeout. She realized what's going to embody this practice. And it's not to say that cooking is also a deep form of of nourishment. But what I'm talking about is to not put the the cart in front of the horse. I see to what first you're ask, what's the need here? Why am I doing this? And then, given that need, how might we we imagine or reimagine or invent a way of coming together?
0: Hmm. I love that. That's actually very empowering, too, because it, it just all of a sudden feels so much more purposeful. Which is like that—it's the, the you tip that first domino, and then sometimes the ones that fall after that just they serve the purpose. Where otherwise, I'd, I would default. I would default to my forms. I love forms. I'm I'm a planner, so like they forms, forms are yeah. beautiful. They, you're right. They can be
1: right when they're the right form. Correct. Right? Every farm was invented at a specific need, like a barn raising. A barn raising actually literally used to be, we need help building this barn. We're a newlywed couple, or we're new farmers, or we're new, we literally need help building this barn. That's true. And so, so often, like so many of our rituals were incredibly helpful at a certain moment in time. And part of the practice of intentional gathering is just simply asking, is this still a ritual relevant to my needs? to my community, to this moment? And the pandemic has like burst
0: that question open. Totally. I mean, I can only imagine how the pandemic impacted your work. I mean, you work around gatherings. You also had to pivot. You had to not just pivot the way in which you were engaging your career, but maybe even the way in which you were instructing people. I mean, I cannot imagine you had a lot of meaningful instruction around gathering on a Zoom before 2020.
1: What's interesting, it's so astute for you to to find that when I so, so The Art of Gathering, the actual book came out in May 2018. And for two years, a little less than two years, when I was writing, when I was, you know, talking about it, when I was it, with communities, I basically like spent the hour that I had making my case. Sure. Gathering matters. <laughs> We're doing time. It's made up. We're on autopilot. Like kind of like wake up, wake up. And then, like, and then, you know, over the course of 40 minutes, 50 people started to understand, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, got it. And then I could begin kind of like teaching the stitching. And pandemic did at some level as it made the case, absolutely. By taking gathering from us, we began to see it. We began to see it as it as this thing that shapes our life. And then you know to channel James Baldwin, you can only change something when you begin to face it. And so we had these two years or more for many people where we began to, at some level, I mean, there was terror and there was pain and there, there's so many, so many elements of this experience, but a lot of social obligation was stripped from us, right? A lot of the things we also wanted to do was taken from us. And what was so interesting when we can be mindful about it is what, when, when there's a vacuum, when there's no social obligation, when we're not running through our weeks and like saying yes to something that someone committed to, you know, whatever, weeks or months ago, you pause, you actually have a moment to like listen to that thing called desire. Who do I want to spend time with? What are the obligations I'm so happy I don't have to do? What am I yearning for? I really miss that thing. Gosh, I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. Right. And so, so much of like what is gathering? Gathering is at some level the way the majority of us spend our time, whether we choose it or not. Right? We get we've been gathering since time immemorial: our classrooms, our houses of worship, our neighborhoods, our potlucks, our meetings. And you can overgather, but the pandemic, at some level, for me, helped make the case that this matters. And so then I could just kind of get to work because I didn't have to make the case. It like I could take that like proof hat off. And, and then as a facilitator, absolutely. Just like, just like so many people, I had to figure out how to help people have conversations they've been avoiding digitally. Right. And so much of group dialogue is actually about multiple people talking and not feeling constrained. How do you do that when everyone's on mute? And so, so many of us have been figuring out, you know, navigating these new tools, but again and again, it came back I had to get clear. And if you all are thinking about like what, you know, what is your, like, what is your purpose, but also what is your work? If I thought of myself as an in-person gathering expert, I would be like, farewell. It's great. You know, gathering is banned. (laughs) Right. See in a couple of years. Yeah, exactly. The paperback came out April, 2020, right? Mm -hmm. It's like awkward. (laughs) When I pause and ask like underneath, what is it that I'm doing? And what is this work about? It is about helping people meaningfully connect despite significant obstacles. And wow,
0: is COVID an obstacle? Isn't it? Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount. So you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O-Allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. So I'm thinking about... The people listening today, we are steering into just the ubiquitous season of gathering. Love it or hate it, want it or not, here it comes. Like, this is a time when our gatherings, they don't just take on sometimes fuller tables, but a lot of meaning or a lot of expectations, of course, which comes alongside of that. And so I think sometimes as hosts, it's our instinct like you said, to focus on the forms like seating and food and drinks and that, but I love the other factors you are pointing our eyes toward. I love that you point us toward purpose. You mentioned briefly, and I'd love to hear you parse it out just a little more about these, well, seemingly contradicting ideas of you're pointing us toward rules You are pointing us toward vulnerability. Well, okay, do those go together? I'd love to hear you discuss how that they do. So it's when people are thinking, I've got 20 people coming. They're all coming. They're coming for Thanksgiving. They're wildly disparate. We have great history or medium history or contentious history, whatever it is. So before they start thinking about their menu, how do you kind of gather everybody's nervous, little anxious hearts around this season and say, okay, start here. First, like a deep breath
1: (laughs) together. So a few, a few things. The first is this work is called the art of gathering, not the art of hosting.
0: Mm, Good part.
1: Because I think guests have a lot of power. How we guest, what we choose to attend, how we decide to show up, how we behave in that moment shapes a gathering. So I may, if it's all right, kind of answer it from the perspective of the guest and the perspective of the host. In part because most of us are guests much more often than we're hosts. That's right? true. Even my holiday season, the majority of, of occasions I'm go, I'm attending, I'm actually the guest. I may That's have a good point. hosting, but actually most of our life we're guesting. And so the first, the first idea I want to I want to kind of introduce is, you know, we we think about our nutritional diets right? What we put in our bodies. When the internet arose, we eventually realized, oh, we should probably have informational diets. What are we choosing to read? What are we choosing to scroll? And at particularly in the time of the holidays, I, I want to introduce an idea of a gathering diet.
0: Hmm.
1: I like this. How many gatherings do I want to attend? What are my communities? Which ones do I want to show up for? in this year, not forever, not every year, what are the conversations I need to have with my partner or my families or my roommates or my beloveds to think about what we want to choose to go together versus not? And partly the reason this is important is because obligation and like ambivalent yeses are complete energy sucks for everybody. Right. And you can feel it even from the, as a host, you don't, you know, like a guest who doesn't want to be there is terrible experience. I love, like, not have you there, right? Because in part, because they affect everyone else, right? Like we are social animals. And part of what that means is like, when people come up as we affect each other, we alter each other. Um, and so the first thing is to really think about as we head into the holiday season, to think about what do I want to guest? And then on the other hand, do I want to host something? And for the hosts, you know, you, you asked, What do you know? Twenty people coming. What do I do? In part, if you're listening to this before you've sent out the invitation, to pause and ask. I mean, the pandemic is a great excuse, right? Most families, most communities I know did very differently over the last two and a half years, right? Things were shaken up. Like assumptions were changed. I remember the first Passover Seder. It was the first time that I think it was the old Orthodox community, Jewish Orthodox community. Don't quote me on it, but one specific community in Israel that issued a decree for the first time that Passover could be held on Zoom, right? Like our rituals had to change because of crisis. And it's an opportunity to pause and actually say, like, what is the need here? So the first thing is don't assume that we're now going back to what you were doing before unless you want to. And pause and to ask, how do we want to do this this year and who wants to be there, right? So it's it's like step a lot back gatherings don't start from the moment people enter the door gatherings start at the moment of discovery and the moment of discovery is when the guest receives the invitation oh will you come to my hanukkah night will you come to my ugly sweater party will you come to my new year's party right it's this future orientation and you're actually guiding you're hosting people all the way through to the moment they enter the room And so, so much of gathering starts well before, even the guest list, a gathering starts before you even send an invitation. A gathering starts when you pause to first ask, why do I want to do this? What are the needs? Who should be there? And how do I want this night to go? And then at some level to see if your guests are game. (laughs) They may not be, but that's the first step.
0: Mm. I'm curious. I'm thinking about those of us who are, we want to. We want to do something different. We'd like to reimagine it. We would love for the tail to not wag the dog. We would love this the freedom and the possibility of making really clear and specific and pointed choices around our gathering, but we are like, could bite our fingernails off thinking about it when it comes to, well, we've always done this, you know, we just, or my family expects this, or it's been 10 years in a row that we've done this and I don't know what to do. And so how would you speak to somebody who has some anxiety around breaking traditions or doing something new or doing something different? Or, I mean, even as brass tacks as a talking point to sort of reset everybody else's expectations that it is possible, but probably also takes just as much intention.
1: Let me start with a story and then maybe work backwards. So this is before the pandemic, but one of the people I interviewed for the art of gathering is a guy named Michelle Laprie. He is a, actually, he's a circus sole choreographer and in part of his job is requires him to be traveling all of the time. And what he realized, he missed people. He missed his people. He his house was kind of like underdecorated. He wanted to fill his home. And so he invited, he came home and he and he realized he needed to trim his tree. Like this is practical. You're talking about brass tacks. Like, I need to put up this tree. <laughs> and he invited 12 friends who didn't all know each other to his holiday party and invited them to ahead of time send two photos to him of moments of happiness from the past year. And when they arrived on the side by this unlit, undecorated tree were ornaments with scissors and glue and their photos printed out of their happiest moments, a for sale sign in front of a house, right? Doing a triple spin off a diving board. And people walked in and they were delighted and surprised and it gave them a shared context. Oh my gosh, Boris, you look so good in those tights. Wow, I didn't realize you moved. Oh, they didn't all know each other. And together they began trimming the tree. And he found this incredibly simple, incredibly practical way to allow people who didn't all know each other. And he told me later when I was asking him about it, the conversation then organically continued about those moments of happiness over dinner. And part of what he did was, again, give people, so here's the practical advice, Two, two different things. One is help people through a very simple format, have some kind of shared context. And the most practical ways to do that is one, ask them to bring something of meaning that would be interesting to the group. That could be potluck style. So if you're thinking, how do I shift these traditions? So say you have a tradition of Thanksgiving, and as it does in many families, all of the weight of the cooking falls on like one person or two people. And it just kind of feels like this doesn't feel fair anymore. And, and so the slight tradition you're gonna shift to is everyone's gonna have a pot, we're gonna have a potluck and you you assign. Invite people perhaps to bring a dish that means something to them or their favorite dish from childhood. The second is very simple tweaks. I just, I have a a newsletter and one of the most recent newsletters was about dress codes. Why do some dress codes, why do some themes work and like really unite a group and others totally backfire? And particularly around the holidays, allowing for a little bit of a playful or specific dress code. And that could be an ugly sweater party, but that people kind of already have ideas about that. It could be bring one piece in your wardrobe that you didn't wear all pandemic. One conversational context helps people. What are you doing there? I mean, it's even a conflict resolution. Sometimes, particularly in families, we don't have enough context to have stuff to talk about because we think we know everything about each other. And so we go down these same road, you know, have the same argument again and again and again and again. It's why it's actually sometimes helpful to bring guests because it's just new life, right? It's like, there's new life. There's new blood in the system. And giving people some small tweet that doesn't feel like a total threat to change the whole tradition can actually increase the volume of shared meaning and frankly, a little bit of distraction from the elements that you don't really need to go into.
0: Mm, Those are great examples. I love that. Do you have a personal sort of Non-traditional tradition in your own family or in your own life, or something that you said it used to be like this, and now we're going to do this, or we've tried something new.
1: Let me think. (laughs) Let me like let me think what I Uh want to share.
0: (laughs) Uh Uh Like for example, while you're thinking, last year at Christmas, I have five kids, and they're young adults for the most part and older teens at this point. I could not get a day where everybody could come home at once and do the tree thing that we had always done. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like, just leave one kid out? Like, and I just went, oh, guess what? Guess what? Young adults, if nobody can make a day work for the whole family, we're just not doing it. And so I hired fancy people to bring a tree into my house and decorate it with top to bottom, like a a grown up person's tree without like the like crappy kid stuff on it. Like, just like that. I bought my Christmas tree. I bought it. I bought Christmas cheer and I loved it. And I might do it again this year. So, And, and, and how did you feel about it at the time? Right at the beginning, I thought, how dare I, how dare I mess with this sacred thing that we do. But then I was just like, it's not working. It's not, I'm trying. It's not that I'm not, I'm trying to do it. It's not working. I'm frustrated. One of these jokers is going to be like, how dare you do that without me? But it's just with the other four, it's just, wasn't working. And so I went, okay, let's read the room. This is obviously not serving the family this year for this whatever year, reason.
1: I think is like an incredibly important part of the sentence. All of us, right. It's like, I think we have so much fear around breaking the tradition and honestly, it's like the Stephanie Kuntz is this beautiful sociologist. She has this book called The Way We Never Were. And I think in part because we have these like really strong meaning making around the very specific act. We actually forget that, oh, yeah, remember the year so-and-so was on college and like they actually weren't a part of it. Or remember the year Tommy broke their, his ankle and actually he was at the hospital. So that we did it two days later. Remember the year Aunt Marge was... And, and I, I don't say this to make the meaning around the ritual less because it's, we're attached to it, but it's a false narrative that it's exactly the same every year. Part of what allows in a divorce is, is a crisis and I, and, positive and right? It's, it's a massive rupture, right? And the pandemic is a massive rupture, right? World War II was a massive rupture. Like I, during the pandemic, when I was, I wrote this piece a couple of years ago called An Improv Thanksgiving. And to write it for the New York Times and to write it, I had to go back and and ask this question to to your question. And I'd be so curious to hear like, is there any year, even when I was married over the last, whatever, 20 something years, were there times where we had to do something different? And it just loosens the hold around, it has to be this way. And in this country, World War II, First of all, there was deep conflict around the day Thanksgiving should be held. 20 states wanted to host it on the Thursday after Thanksgiving and 20 states wanted to hold on the Friday and FDR like issued a credence to change the day and half the states freaked out, but it was to try to like, like build the economy. Then majority men were away from the, for the war. And a lot of people weren't with their families so Americans opened up their homes to host a soldier. People came up with all types of new recipes because they the stores were out of stock. They invented and so much of r- ritual. I mean, like love, thank you for sharing this like beautiful, vulnerable example of breaking tradition because of necessity. And you know when rituals are powerful? When they're needed. And so part of what you're, and you may see something different in this year, in two years, in three years, your one of your five children may say, you know what, mom? I see this is too much for you. And I'm longing. It goes back to our earlier conversation around desire. I'm longing to actually go back to that. Would you mind if I hosted it? (gasps) Oh my gosh, they're growing up. You know, whatever No, and so part of this is like these false binaries that is tradition or it's breaking tradition. And part of what you're you're authentically experiencing is like saying, This is not working this year. I'm going to try something else. And also, you may have been happy. You may have also had a little sense of loss. And part of allowing for new rituals is to also let people feel
0: sad about the loss. That's good. Right. We can hold both those things. It just doesn't, they don't have to cancel each other out. We can. Both oh, are true.
1: This was some a beautiful sadness. thing yeah. we had. In a system that worked for some time and those were the patterns of that family and now that family is changing forms and so we must change forms too and our rituals are like the observable symbols of our forms and when the forms are shifting their rituals also need to shift for them to be relevant and meaningful to the people who choose to be in those systems
0: Mm, this is so good i love how you keep using the word ritual you have mentioned before that your favorite definition of ritual is by Jonathan Cook, which is ritual is nothing more than the transference of state from something to something. I read that sentence probably three times, getting ready for that question, going transference of state from... I want to hear you talk about that sentence, what it means for you, for us, and why this matters.
1: When I went out to research for the Art of Gathering, a big part of the book is my own experience as a, as a group facilitator. And a big part of the book is interviews with over 100 different people who other people credited with consistently creating transformative gatherings, as well as just experts in ritual and gathering, game design, ritual designers. So so Jonathan Cook was someone, someone suggested to me to talk to. And he said this definition. And I was like, can you say
0: that? Totally. (laughs) That's my response.
1: (laughs) What does that mean? And I was like, there's a lot of lofty language in that. And he said, okay, let me break it down for you. He said, my morning cup of coffee. I have this cup of coffee and it's transferring me from night state to morning state. It's a transference of state. I'm going from my sleepy eyed, like kind of also just like different clothes, different... And then I have this cup of coffee. I have it every morning at the same time, at the same place. And it shifts me into day mode. And one of the reasons I liked this example was because, first of all, he was putting his thumb on something, which is ritual doesn't have to be collective. Right? We have our own rituals. I may have, right now I'm I'm sipping a little cup of blue tea out of a mug that I often like to have when I'm preparing for a conversation I'm excited about. And many of our powerful rituals are collective and And all that is saying is, you know, so much of our so much of meaning is created in moments of transition, moves, births, weddings, deaths, retirements, divorce. And when we don't mark those moments, and particularly with others, it can be, it's difficult to be witnessed through those transitions and collective ritual allows us to just pause and mark time together and many of our collective rituals have been invented at other places at other times with people who don't share the same beliefs so even if you think something like a sh- like a baby shower right this is a very specific tradition created at a specific moment in time where mothers were the dominant parent where people were getting married at a much younger age and needed a lot more financial help where maternal mortality rates were higher, though that's shifting again, particularly in black communities. But basically, you know, the pin, the diaper on the baby, you know, women gathering around one woman. It is a form with a lot of assumptions. And if, as at least I am a part of a union in which a man and a woman, a heterosexual couple or a gay couple, Wants to parent equally. We don't have transitional rituals to allow both people to prepare for that role, in part because we didn't see that role in our parents. And so then we have this little sneaky ritual that actually prepares the mother, but also implicitly part of our rituals is who is not in the room. And if we're saying, why aren't they co parenting? Why aren't they sharing the household labor? Why aren't there, in part, it's like our rituals are like the tailwind of like our belief system. And we actually need to shift them so that they're leading. They're preparing us for the worlds we want to create, not reflecting the worlds we're trying to leave. That's good.
0: I'm at the age, my friends and I, our kids are young adults now. And so I am in this interesting new stage where our kids are getting married. And so they're in their twenties or whatever they are. And they are this age group, this generation sees the world with fresh eyes and they, they push on rituals. They push on these traditions that we just defaulted to. And I'm thinking about some of our young adults getting married and they're like, I don't want you to walk me down the aisle and give me away. I'm not a, I'm not your property. Like, or why is it just dad? Why is dad walking me down the aisle and giving me to another man? This is like archaic and not even reflective of our partnership. And we're so in the parent sect, we're like, Oh my God, I don't know why we're doing that. Like, we don't own you. Like it's not just dad giving you to another man. Like what? I don't know. And so I like, like these hard- that's what that means, right? Exactly. No, totally.
1: like, and 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 if I can just add, it's also a form and a ritual that, from many people, has been passed down generation after generation. That we've seen plastered to our living room walls. And so the contract resolution facilitator in me doesn't say that's the end of the conversation. That's the beginning of the conversation. And the next questions become, it doesn't mean we throw, throw it all out. It means, okay, how do you want to honor? To me, one thing that is important as a parent, I'm making this up, is that we feel like we have been part of shaping you. And part of what I love about the walking down the aisle though I understand that it's misogynistic or whatever language you want to use, it's from a paternalistic context. Part of what I love about it is it gives people a moment to look at the parent. It gives people a moment. Would you be open to thinking about creating a ritual in which we have a role and what might that look like, right? Chidamumba Ngozi Adiche, a Nigerian writer who wrote this book called Americana, she posted on Instagram maybe a year ago That she did her first dance with her mom. And again, it's like I said this earlier with like, it's just a slight tweak. I'm not saying like burn the house down, (laughs) but in each of us, like what are the traditions and rituals and which ones do you kind of want to shift so that they're more authentic and which ones do you want to honor in part because it's 12 generations before and you're okay with it. And that answer is going to look different in different families, but the conversation is actually how we begin to say out loud our assumptions, our transitions, our moments of reflection. What was my role to you? How do we do this? And then there's the forced mechanism of gathering where you kind of have to do something and someone has to decide.
0: These are great. These are great questions to ask. These are great ideas to ponder. I really love sort of the process of considering meaning first. Before we process. wrap it up and all the fun, yes, it's a yes, process. That's that's beautiful. It's a pro, and it's yes, a practice for sure. And I can imagine that becomes more and more intuitive it the does. more that you prioritize like meaning and connection, and then building around that those answers. I can I can see how that would just become the way that you gather in general, and in the way that you get absolutely. Uh-huh. And I appreciate that distinction. That was good.
1: Thank you. And some of this is also like, yeah, we're, we've been talking so far about reimagining the whole thing, right? Which can kind of feel overwhelming. One simple way to inject meaning into your gathering is often we, we I don't know if you had exper- this experience, Jen, but often you go to a, anything, a college reunion or a back to school night or, you know, fill in the blank, And people are milling around and it's like fun at first, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And then all of a sudden it's kind of like, is anything going to happen? Like, what what, what are we doing? Why are we here? And one of the simplest ways, if you're hosting anything, is to practice creating what I call a moment of focus. It can be 30 seconds. There's 30 seconds where you can say a string of words that completely transforms the room. And you ding your glass. I'll give an example. This is in the book. I was once at a Passover Seder. I'm not Jewish. I'd never been to a Seder. I wasn't sure what to expect. And I was excited, a little bit nervous. I came in. There's probably 30 people there. Some people were sitting and chatting with each other on the floor, on pillows, others on a couch, other people walking, talking. And maybe 30 minutes in, the host dung her glass and she just said, Welcome, everybody. And everyone kind of turned around. She said, My husband and I couldn't be happier that you're here. For some of you, This is our 23rd Seder together. And I am so happy you are here. I couldn't imagine doing this without you. For others, this is not just your first Seder with us. This is your first Seder ever. And I couldn't be more overjoyed to have you. You help us renew. You give us fresh senses of ourself. We are so happy that you are here. And on a personal note, this is the first Seder that I've had without my mother. And so it's incredibly important and meaningful to be with you in this moment. Let's begin. 30 seconds? 45? Why are we here? Why are you here? Even if you are different, you're each playing a role. How meaningful is it to me? Right? And so often, because we're trying not to impose, in part because we think, oh, let's not be formal. We undercreate meaning. And we are all hungry for meaning. Why are we here? What permission do we have to talk to one another? Right? 70th birthday party. Welcome to my 70th birthday party. Thank you for flying all over the world to come here. We are at this hotel because when I first moved here, this was the hotel I dreamed of going to 45 years ago when I immigrated. And this food here is here because that was the first hot dog stand that when I would go every day during my lunch break. And this, and you are here because of this. All of a sudden, and all of you are here because. You have shaped me, and I love you, and I give you permission. I, if you have one gift to me tonight, it's to get to know each other. Enjoy, right? You shift one meaning moment of focus, thirty seconds, sixty seconds. Why are we here? It's giving people intellectual, m- emotional, conversational codes and permission and guardrails to then. Like, have a beautiful evening and know, like, how to be without overimposing.
0: Lovely. I love it. What a wonderful sort of process that you've kind of handed us to begin. And I cannot think of a single person who was not, like, leaning forward, listening to this episode going, oh, it's so good. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that this year. This is what I'm going to say. Like, Yes. Yes.
1: Beautiful questions you're making, and I hope you can see you're making me
0: think aloud. Mm, So fantastic. Okay, we're going to finish here. This is a question that I actually ask every guest, Brielle, every series, every episode, and we get every manner of answer. And so, I please feel free to answer this tenderly and earnestly if you want, or just like absurdly. That it all is good. (laughs) All answers are good answers. Okay. I borrowed this question from an Episcopal priest named Barbara Brown Taylor, who I love and I just love her way of being in the world. And in one of her books, she asked this question, what is saving your life right now? Mm. Oh,
1: a beautiful question. Mm-hmm, isn't it? I'll say what's coming to mind and that is piano. Oh, you play. Well, here's the interesting thing. I have longed to play and I thought I missed the boat. I grew up. I played flute, and so I have a musical background and the piccolo. I was in marching band. Little known sure. fact. <laughs> and 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 I always kind of felt no offense to my fellow flute players, Lizzo in the house. I always felt flute's kind of a lonely instrument. You need a whole orchestra. You need a symphony. You can and I, I longed to play piano. And long story short, like my I now have a child who's of you know playing age, and he started taking classes, started taking lessons, and I just thought. Hmm. And I started, I asked the teacher, do you teach adults? And she said, yes. And I didn't want to over, over promise. And so I said, can, can I just take four lessons? I don't know if I want to do this. I don't want to, you know, a teacher's a serious relationship, you know? <laughs> can we dance? And I started, this is probably six months ago. And I now am practicing. I'm now learning piano. And I'll tell you why it's saving saving my life right now, which is when I'm playing, when I'm practicing, when I'm in my lesson, I feel like I'm closing the gap between the life I long for or wish I had and the life that I have.
0: Oh, that's and I'm so terrible. Delightful. Like that's
1: not the point, of right? You, it's like I, I don't know the keys, the I beginning. don't know the lessons, I don't know the. Yeah. But it's like I'm oh, doing the thing.
0: Yeah, golly, I've never regretted putting that kind of yes on the table, the one yeah. that I've imagined, envisioned, yes. that I could do and, yes. and being willing to start at the beginning when you're awful and being willing to not be a success at it for a while or ever, but for the love yes. of it, for yes. the love of it. Yes. I just think that is such a fantastic, I don't think anybody's ever said piano after like five <laughs> years. I think that's the first time we've ever had someone say, I'm learning to play an instrument.
1: It puts my brain in a different place. It gives me it it, it's deep focus in a way that I almost don't have in any other part of my life. It's frustrating, and so it's it's like it's just it's it's as you would say it's good. It's good. good.
0: Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Perfect answer. I'm so grateful you were on today. Can you just tell my community the best places to find you in your work? Because you have so many tools and resources. You are an incredible gift to people who want to build a lot of meaning into their lives and relationships and gatherings and friendships and families. Thank you. Thank you. That's a very generous question. The
1: best way is to go to priaparker.com, which is my website. On there, I have free guides that you can download that are how to plan the new rules of gathering, how to plan any special occasion. It'll take you beat by beat through all of these questions we've been talking about. And I have a monthly newsletter you, you can sign up for. We are talking about the art of guesting during the holidays and every month we have a new I have a new newsletter where I'm taking on some specific question that I that I hear from people that everyone is trying to sort through and then we have a digital course that's coming in the spring and you can sign up for it also on the website, but this is a, it. it's a practice. It's a practice that it's anyone practice. can do. It's like that's ratatouille. Right. Like anyone can cook, anyone can gather and you have to, and it's, and it's practice. Fantastic.
0: Okay. Thank you for being on today. Thank you so much for your time. I know time is our hottest commodity. And so I'm always incredibly thankful when someone invests in my community. And so I am cheering you on in every way. I'm so just a fan of your work. I've learned from you so much and I continue to learn. And so thanks for being on today.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for your beautiful questions, modeling, beautiful hosting, holding your community while you're also holding me. It's been such a treat.
0: All right, you guys, I loved that conversation. I mean, really, I just sat here talking to Priya, thinking. I was just thinking through my own gatherings. I was also thinking through my own. I like how she says, how to guest. I'm thinking about being a guest. I am thinking about several of the suggestions she gave us that are just so, so doable, so possible. All it requires is a little bit of intention, really. Not like a complicated system for how to be a perfect host, but rather like how to create connection and meaning. These are the better questions, frankly let's let them drive the decisions that we make about gathering during this season. So fantastic. So as mentioned, priaparker.com is where you can find her stuff. If you go to jinhatmaker.com underneath the podcast tab, I will have all of this for you. I'll have this show in the link and all the show notes, of course. And then I'll put links to all of Priya's things, her books, her everything, her resources, her newsletter, her website. So you can find everything in one stop to make it easy for you. We're thinking about you, community. We're thinking about you so much this holiday season. We want it. We're always chasing the elusive holiday season to be like just lovely <laughs> or maybe less stressful, less anxiety producing, less contentious, less busy just for the sake of being busy and more meaningful, more connected, more simple, more Wonderful. That's our goal. So that's what I hope this series is offering you. It is definitely doing it for me. So thank you for listening. Come back next week. We have more to come in this series and I think you're going to love it. See you then.